Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Summer in Washington, a time when Congress is out of session, a time when things tend to slow down a bit, a time when, traditionally, presidents try to take advantage of the relative quiet to set an agenda and send a positive message in the media. Yet, even according to some of President Trump's allies, the summer of 2019 didn't quite work out that way. The president faced a series of controversies and a faltering U.S. economy. Trump did have some wins, but ultimately it seems Trump fell short of setting a foundation for his 2020 campaign. Back in June, the Post averaged seven polls to find Trump's approval rating at 43 percent. In August, those same polls showed an average of 41 percent. So as the White House ramps up for the fall, we're taking a look back to understand how presidents usually approach the political opportunity of summer and what makes Trump's approach so different. Plus, what might change when Congress comes back to Washington next week? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. The Post's White House reporter, Ashley Parker, and our White House bureau chief, Philip Rucker, wrote a story earlier this week on this very topic. Their reporting reveals what some Trump advisors and allies characterize as a lost summer for Trump, full of self-inflicted controversies and missed opportunities. I sat down with Ashley to talk to her about her story and how summers tend to go in Washington when it comes to Congress and the president. So in theory, what it means is that Congress is out of session and it is an opportunity for a president and a White House to kind of grab the proverbial microphone and push a message, push an agenda, focus on an issue or a range of issues with sort of an undiluted media spotlight without, as someone put it in our story, all of these, you know, People in Congress yapping at your heels. Mm-hmm. The other thing I should point out about summers is that the while the rule is that they are traditionally slower times for a White House to kind of seize that opportunity, the kind of running joke is that summers often go off the rails. And to give you a sense of that, I can remember one time I covered Congress. It was a summer. I felt like I could safely go on a New England long weekend and sitting at, I believe it was, a clam shack on the Cape holding up my iPhone to try to get service so I could watch Obama's streaming speech about Syria and the red line. So right. so the, the one important point to, to keep in mind is summers do not always go according to plan, almost to the point where it is the exception that proves the rule. So are there particular summers in the course of an administration that are more or less important, things like that first summer you're in office or the one right before a campaign season? So in theory, a summer before a campaign, a full campaign year, would be if you can get the conditions right. Right. A perfect opportunity to really before Labor Day, before things really hit their stride, 
to try to take advantage of getting your messaging in order, of seizing the spotlight, of trying to figure out your key agenda items that maybe help you both as a president govern, but also are important with key constituencies and kind of trying to lay the groundwork for a successful campaign. So the summer before campaign would always be a period where whatever you can do would be very valuable for your reelection chances. And from your reporting, do you know if Trump saw it that way? Did Trump approach it deliberately? That is a great question. We did this story on how Trump had this summer that in many ways went off the rails. And some of it, some of the frustration we heard was that Trump sort of actively did not seize this moment to figure out, you know, what what are the key policy items and policy initiatives? Is there, you know, an actual infrastructure week (laughs) that they actually (laughs) want to have happen and have devoted to infrastructure? And part of it going off the rails uh, did not seem intentional. It was feuds with these four minority congresswomen telling them to go back to the countries from which they came. It was calling uh, the majority black city of Baltimore, Elijah Cummings District, rat and rodent infested. It was having his crowd echo back his own words with a center back chant. It was a mass shooting that no one could have predicted where the alleged gunman echoed a lot of the president's words on immigration in the screed that he wrote. And it was the president then. And again, no one could have predicted um, this particular mass shooting. Um, It was the president going down to El Paso and to Dayton, where two of these mass shootings took place and showing in the eyes of many critics, not a lot of empathy. So some of it felt very circumstantial and some of it felt that the president could have more deliberately seized the moment and for whatever reason failed to. Do we know of any deliberate plans that he did set out with at the beginning of the summer before all of these instances? One thing, and again, this was not specifically geared towards the reelection, but it, it was the lead of our story and Trump went into the summer knowing that for the 4th of July, he wanted a massive celebration with military tanks and flyovers and fireworks and stunning vistas of the monuments and on the National Mall that was a celebration of America and, frankly, a celebration of himself. Mm -hmm. And he came under a lot of criticism for that. Some people said it sort of had the feel of less being a celebration of America's independence and a bit more feeling like a Make America Great Again rally. But that was something he he went into very deliberately. He wanted that to happen. And in many ways, that was one of the high points of his summer. You touched on some of the points that were sort of less positive for Trump over the summer. Now, as the summer progressed, we saw one theme really dictate some of Trump's reactions and some of the coverage of Trump. And that was his trade war with China and how that affected the economy. So can you explain a little bit about how Trump handled that over the summer? Sure. The way Trump handled that was with a series of tweets and statements in the media um, and private comments with officials that did not seem to be emanating from any particular strategy. And as he did so, you would see the markets respond in ping pong up and down. And in fact, at the G7, a reporter stood up and asked the president, sort of pointed to, you you make a comment, you say something about how American companies should all withdraw from China and the markets go crazy, they plummet, they rise on what you're saying, and sort of ask, do you take any responsibility for the way in which you are sending the global economy into skitters. And Trump basically said, well, that's simply how I negotiate. Mm-hmm. Um, so so if you believe that response, then maybe there was a smidge of method to the madness. 
Overall, what do we know about how Trump then perceives this summer? Does he think of it as a collection of notable successes or notable disasters? What's his perception? So it's worth pointing out that as we were doing this story, we did what we always do, which is we talked to a number of people and we also reached out to the administration to kind of lay out what we were hoping to do, which was to take stock of the president's summer the victories and some of the non-victories, as it were. And the White House, and we mentioned this in the story, but the White House did give us 26 examples of what they viewed as his successes. Some of those were real successes. Some of them different people could agree on if it is a success or not. They cited the president meeting with the North Korean leader and becoming the first sitting American president to walk across the demilitarized zone into North Korea. They view that as a success. Other people do not view that as a success. But to answer your original question, how does the president view it? Based on his response and reaction to our article, I think he fundamentally disagrees with what some of his allies Mm -hmm. and aides told us in the article. He does seem to think it was a success. He was very frustrated to the point where the White House press secretary tweeted out about it. And the White House actually produced a video kind of outlining what they viewed as all of these successes. Was this summer much different, though, than the summer of 2017 or the summer of 2018 or really, for that matter, day to day in the Trump administration? That's also a great question. And that is a point that some of his allies made to us. Some people expressed disappointment and frustration that he hadn't done more. But other people said, you know, what was this summer great? No. But was it any worse than any other summer or any other week or any other day? Not really. Right. And Trump arguably has the ability to bounce back from some of these instances. He arguably has the ability to bounce back. And the most conventional wisdom on why the president wasted his summer is that you have this opportunity when Congress is out of session and you can sort of command the entire media spotlight to dictate the national discussion and highlight your agenda items and a number of Trump's allies fairly made the point that while that is true with most presidents, Trump in particular can command the national spotlight whenever he wants. If he if yes. he wants to put a policy into the media bloodstream, he can tweet about it at 5.45 a.m. And when we all wake up, we will cover it. And so this may have been slightly less of a lost opportunity for him than it would be for someone else. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. It's worth pointing out also that historically, presidents don't always not guaranteed an easy approval boosting summer, even when they try. Right. I think you had some examples of this in your story. Absolutely. Not just challenging summers, but challenging summers right before an election year. So take President George W. Bush, for instance, the summer before his reelect, he really slumped as the Iraq war dragged on and public opinion moved away from him and his White House. And he went on to win re-election in the summer of 2011, uh, which was right before the 2012 election where President Obama was up for re-election. That was when he got into the debt showdown with Republicans, and he suffered for that. And so you can have a tough summer. In fact, it it seems fairly common right before a re-election mm-hmm. to have a tough summer and absolutely rebound. Right. Both of those presidents went on to win the, exactly. their following elections. So 
as we head into 2020, do we know what he's planning on focusing on? We talk about how this summer led, is leading into the heat up of the election season. Do we know what's kind of on Trump's agenda for this fall and, and into the next year? One key thing that that he has always cared about and it has become clear recently in the moving $3.6 billion in Pentagon funding to help pay for the construction of the border wall is the wall and immigration. Immigration is going to be a huge part of Trump's pitch for re-election. And specific- As it was part of his pitch for election. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and one thing that is fascinating is that I've been, like a lot of members of the White House team, to a number of Trump rallies. And if you talk to his supporters, you learn one thing, which is that they are unshakable. They will support just about his core base. They will support just about anything he says or does. As as he himself said, he could shoot people on Fifth Avenue and not lose votes. And there's a bit of hyperbolic truth to that. But the one thing, if you ask them about the job that they think he's doing, they will say they wished he had made more progress on the border wall. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily blame him. They often blame Congress. Even when Republicans, his own party, held both the House and the Senate, they still blamed Republicans in Congress for not letting the president do what he wanted to do. But the wall is not just a campaign promise. It's not just one of many fixes that may be required to overhaul the nation's immigration system. But it, as the president, as a developer, understands it is a physical, tangible manifestation of his campaign promises, of his ideology, of what his base wants, of of his ability to build things and, and get things done. And so there is a real desire from both the president and his base to see the actual wall begin construction. The wall is much more compelling as a totem, as, as something to view and talk about and see than, say, new tweaks to our e-verify system. What about the economy? What might we see from from that? Well, in many ways, the economy is, you know, as James Carville said, it's the economy stupid and the economy looms outsized in this and, frankly, is the backdrop to all of this. There's a world in which people think Trump can weather any number of scandals if the economy is good and if the economy tanks, even if he moderates his language and his behavior and his tweets, that he will still pay a price for a recession, for instance. And Mm so the economy is an interesting question because a lot of it is out of the president's control. But as we talked about before, there are things that this president in particular does, like attacking his chief of the Federal Reserve or negotiating a trade war with China in the court of public and Twitter opinion that do, at least on a daily basis, cause the markets to spike. So there's things he can maybe do in the margins to help the markets not plummet in a day when he makes statements that people find alarming. But in some ways, everyone is kind of helpless to the economy and Trump and his aides just need to hope that it stays on an upward trajectory. And the economy is particularly interesting because it is something that Trump likes to take a lot of credit for repeatedly over many years, taking credit for a good economy. So should it become a a much worse economy, it's interesting to see how that might play out for him. Absolutely. Not just that, he takes a ton of credit for the economy. And he also, the economy is the answer 
to a number of questions. So sometimes if he gets a critical question about, you know, what are you doing to win over black voters, he'll cite the economy Mm -hmm. and he'll say, you know, the economy is improving and that's really helping blacks or that's really helping women. And so it, it is this answer to a number of questions that could be potentially thorny. And so if that goes away, all that credit he's been taking for it goes away. And in all the realms he has applied the economy to also go away. Okay, so those might be the things that are in the forefront of Trump's mind and on Trump's radar right now. But what about when Congress comes back next week? What does Trump's agenda look like then? One open question is they're coming back in in the wake of these two more mass shootings in Dayton and El Paso. And I think I don't know what we will see, but that is going to be something that Congress and the president have to address together. And it'll be interesting to see if they make any progress on this, which which frankly could be helpful for Trump because it would allow himself to say what he ran on in many ways, which is that I'm a deal maker. I can go in there and I can get common sense things done. And if you look at the polling, you know, a majority of Americans agree on sort of basic background checks and it would give him the ability to say, I, I did this. There was a problem and I solved it and I brought Democrats and Republicans together. And that's something he has rarely been able to do. And if he doesn't take action on gun control, I think you would also see him turn around and say to his base, I stood firm for you and I supported the Second Amendment and this was the right thing. And I heard you and I knew what you want. And I made sure that there was no background checks that a majority of Americans support. So I don't know what he'll do, but I think guns will factor in in some way in the short term. And as I think about this conversation that we're having, I realize that perhaps this framework of thinking about how President Trump would potentially take advantage of the summer in the absence of Congress and now Congress is coming back, perhaps that framework in and of itself can't traditionally be applied to Trump, right? He's a president who doesn't quite work with Congress the way other presidents do. So maybe the absence of Congress doesn't really matter in the way that it matters for other presidents. Right. He's he's a president who doesn't work with Congress in traditional ways. He's a president who has no shortage of ability to command the media spotlight and drive an agenda or a message if he so chooses. Although he often drives a message, but it's not always what his staff would like him to drive. And he's a president also who, you know, if you talk to people close to him or if you frankly observe him, is always trying to sort of win the moment, the hour, the day, the week. And so he may not view this summer as sort of one piece in a building block of a seven-dimensional chess game for Election Day, but it may just be moment to moment. What's happening with the hurricane? What's happening with the economy? How do I feel about that meeting I just had with a foreign leader at the G7? And should I tweet about it? Right. Okay. My final question to you is, we've seen a lot of these controversies over the summer. Now that the summer is behind us, has Trump largely recovered from them? Are they still permeating the political conversation? That's also a great question. There, There's some people who always say that Trump is sort of this master of distraction, that, you know, he, he did this thing that we're no longer talking about because he's held up this other shiny object over here that everyone is now focusing on. And in some ways that is true, but I don't think it's necessarily strategic. So, you know, we may not be talking about his feud with the so-called squad because we're instead talking about how when he went to visit the victims of a mass shooting, he bragged about his crowd size compared to Better O'Rourke and flashed thumbs up with the victims. I mean, that's not necessarily the savviest political strategy to Mm -hmm. distract from one controversy 
with another. But Trump has shown himself sort of impervious to the rules of political gravity. So if there's anyone who can recover from a controversy or a number of controversies or a a series of back to back to back to back to back controversies, some of them self-inflicted, it would absolutely be President Trump. (laughs) Thanks so much, Ashley, for coming on the show. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? For more reporting on the Trump administration's agenda as we head into the fall, you can visit WashingtonPost.com. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the incredibly hardworking Carol Alderman with design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art from Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. 